Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, listener, it's Dan here, and this is a special audio broadcast of Market Call. It's a live video series I do every Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. with Guy Adami. Today, we looked at the markets ahead of the Fed. Paul Tudor Jones saying he can't think of a worse environment right now for financial assets, plus big earnings like AMD and Starbucks after the bell on Tuesday. So if you like what you hear, be sure to follow us at MKT Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media's YouTube page so you never miss an episode. What up, people? I'm back. One o'clock Eastern time. Swizzle here with Dan Nathan, May 3rd, Tuesday. Now, we didn't get a chance to talk about it yesterday because I wasn't here. But the symbol for May is K. Some of you may recall the symbol for April is J. Now, the smart amongst you will say, well, that would mean then, Guy, the symbol for June will be L. But you would be wrong and we'll wait to June to get there. I'm Guy Adami, as I mentioned, joined by Dan Nathan. Today's market call brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity and we are powered by open exchange you can find them at open exchange tv on the twitter as you can tell dan i am all amped up here and i just said that on twitter that i'm amped up you are amped up buddy we missed you yesterday carter did yeoman's work as mm. they say filling in for you we hit the charts we hit the markets we had we laughed we cried it was a lot of fun all right here's the deal um i think some people might be laughing some people might be crying tomorrow when that fed comes out we're gonna have a market call right before that which will be really exciting here but right now you know one of the things that's kind of interesting to me is that you know we had that close guy on friday we were doing a live twitter spaces into the close and the s p was careening lower it was down what, 3% or so. Um, and then the NASDAQ closed down 4% of the day. Horrible month of April, down 9% for the S&P, down 13% for the NASDAQ. And here we are, almost 22 years to the day, Guy Adami, the Fed, the Fed is going to be raising interest rates by a half a point for the first time since May of 2000. And so just look at look at what Amanda did here. She's got Jerome Powell. Mm. He looks, I don't know, is he, what, what does he look? Is he pensive? Pensive is the word yeah. I would use, pensive. Yeah. I, I mean, look at all those headlines. You think those are all in his like folder? He's just reading those right now and thinking, what should we do? What should we, any surprises tomorrow, you think, guy? Would that be a Google Doc? No, no surprises. I think they've pretty much told you what they're going to do. I think we'll talk about the potential surprises over the next couple of days or yeah. the next couple of months, and we'll get into that. But I don't think you're going to have any surprises. And quite frankly, I think one of the reasons the market, again, rallied yesterday, rallied again today a pretty violent <laughs> way. People just squaring up ahead of all this stuff. So I can't believe it would be virtually impossible, in my opinion, for them to be more hawkish than they've been. What I really find interesting, and we'll talk about this, a litany of people have come out, Paul Tudor Jones being the most recent one, saying, yeah. you know, the markets are a little dangerous area right now. And I agree. So when you have the Richard Fishers of the world saying that the market is really not in the purview of this Federal Reserve, and that if the market goes down now, I'm paraphrasing, it's basically collateral damage. I mean, take these people at their word. But in terms of your original question, I do not anticipate 
any surprises out of the mouth of Jerome Powell. All right, tomorrow. but let's let let's just talk about it here, right? So, like Fed funds, the the, the CME Fed tracker is pricing a hundred percent probability of a fifty basis point hike tomorrow, right? And then if you look out to the June meeting, um, you know, it gets a little it gets a little funky, right? I mean, we know that these probabilities will change. That's why we watch this this Fed tracker tool here. But um, there are some things that they might be able to say, the active acting hawkish and sound dovish, that sort of thing. So again, we we won't know until it comes out um, tomorrow here. But I do think it's interesting. You just mentioned PTJ, as the kids call them, mm-hmm. don't they? Paul Tudor Jones. You came up in the business with with uh, Tudor Jones here. And it's interesting. He was on Squawk and Friends this morning on CNBC. And you see the headlines right here. You say it's, it's just a really difficult environment. You can't think of a worse one. Well, I have to assume that he traded um, through periods of the late 70s and the 80s. And there were definitely some periods that probably resembled a little bit of what we're into now. I, I guess, would you just say it's just the litany of uncertainty right now in the face of a rising Fed, in the face of inflation that's out of control, and maybe some things that we can't control, right, that are causing the inflationary pressures. Is that what makes it so hard to kind of figure out what the stock market's going to do? Huge component of it. I think, you know, but I'll answer it a different way. I think part of the reason is so many people have been involved in a market that effectively only has gone higher over the last 13 or so years understanding we've had periods of volatility and periods where the market has cratered. But effectively, you know, you're talking about 90% of the time this market's been on autopilot, again, based on, in my opinion, this extraordinarily accommodative Federal Reserve. That's now changed. And I don't think people fully comprehend what it means to have a Fed that's pivoting in a major way, not only raising interest rates, but trying to, at least they're going to attempt to, to, uh, you know, reduce their balance sheet. That's going to be the real trick. I think the market gets interest rate hikes. I'm not certain the market gets uh, balance sheet reductions, Dan. Yeah, and I guess that would be one surprise. I know Danny Moses, who does On the Tape podcast with us, drops each Friday. You find it in your podcast stores, people. You know, he's saying that you know one of the ways that they might be able to kind of talk dovishly is basically talk down their intentions as it relates to quantitative tightening. So meaning the, the runoff of the balance sheet. And I think when you go back and look at other periods, right, where, you know, there were fears of a, re- a recession or so, and the Fed, how do they manage recessions? You've said it on many occasions. They obviously just do their, their kind of open market operations. And they lower rates and they do their quantitative easing. Well, they can't do that unless they get rates back up here. here here's a tweet from our good friend Liz Young-Strat over at SoFi. I think you call her, what, EY? I don't know why you call her EY. Why, but she's L-Y um, to me. Guy, what does this chart say to you? She's looking at these past rate hiking cycles over the last three decades. You see them there and look at how the volatility spike that we get during those cycles. What's your take on this? Because usually you would correspond that with downward price action in stocks, correct? That's, ex- that's exactly right. Listen, I- I've said for a number of years that one of the whether intended or not intended consequences of an extraordinarily accommodative Federal Reserve is they dampen volatility. Well, when they go the other way, obviously, when they start to raise rates and reduce their balance sheet, that dampening of volatility will go away. And again, I don't think the market fully comprehends where volatility, quite frankly, should be in this environment. We saw whispers of it, obviously, on Friday. We saw a little of it yesterday. I think you're going to see it the remainder of this week. You know, we're talking about a VIX that was mired around 12 or 13 for so long. Yeah. Now a VIX that maybe the normal uh, the level for the VIX should be in the mid-20s, and you're going to see spikes to the low 40s. I think that's the environment that we find ourselves in. But don't listen to me. Just look at this chart, Dan, and I think it tells you everything you need to know. 
No doubt about it. And you know what's really interesting that we got really used to in the age of quantitative easing, you know, a VIX that was like a teenager, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I started in the business, the average for the VIX since its inception was like around 20, okay? And and so I know it hadn't been around. Maybe it started in 1990 or something like that. But up until like through the financial crisis, it literally was averaging, you know, about 20 or so. And then in the age of quantitative easing, it just got killed. To your point that you're making, you know, one of the things, Guy, when I think about just positioning and you said people are squaring things up prior to tomorrow's meeting, I think it's interesting that, you know, the S&P down 12% on the year, okay, not a disaster, right? It was up 26%. That's not counting dividends last year. And when you look at just the volatility that we've had over the last just couple months here, and it has had a lot to do, obviously, with the fears of rising rates, you know, right before the Fed meeting in March, I think the meeting was on March 18th, on March 15th, the stock market, the S&P 500, which had gone from 4,800 in the second trading day of the year, as low as on March 15th, just below 4,200, had a huge rip, right? It literally, they sold the rumor and they bought the news. And then we saw 4,200 to 4,600 in what felt like a straight line. And then uh, when Jerome Powell confirmed that he's going to raise 50 basis points up in the hill a few weeks ago, we had that horrible, horrible um, sell-off in April. So my question to you here is, are we likely to see a little firming up of the S&P 500? Sentiment's really bad. Almost every reading is atrocious here. Do we have a rip maybe back towards 4,400 on the acknowledgement that the Fed is doing what they said they're going to do? I think the bulls would think that. I think Tom Lee thinks that. I think a lot of people that, you know, I don't want to say their dogma suggests that they're constantly bullish, but I think obviously a lot of people think we're about to see this bounce as to your point, all this news is sort of baked in a cake. I, I am not one of those people, by the way. I could understand why we'd go back and take another look at the 200-day moving average, but I think we've done that dance already. And a lot of damage was done yesterday. I, listen, I know the market did rally. I know the market bounced today as well. But the damage has been done, in my opinion. And I thought 4,000 for a long time. I think we got down to what, like 4075 or so? 4050, guy. Nostradami. Nostradami. Well, no, but I'll tell you, you know, and and I'll stand by it. I still think the ultimate objective here is 3750. So the first time down, we bounced. That makes sense. We held and we bounced. I think this bounce is not going to be as nearly as aggressive as the bounce we saw back in March. And I think for a number of reasons, you know, again, everybody says the Fed's priced in. I agree. I think the Fed is priced in in terms of what the bond market's doing. But I don't think the market, again, to go back to an earlier point, fully comprehends what this complete pivot is in terms of not only interest rate risings, but balance sheet reductions. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, going back to your your 4,000 call and then your 3,750, I mean, if we go through yesterday's low, okay, and that was a, a heck of a rip, right, that reversal, we go through that low. There is really no technical support on that chart until about 3,800, so not far away from your 3,750 call. And, and one of the things I really want to clarify, and if you go back to all the way to the start of 2021, you see, you know, 3,600s, a level. That's probably one of the reasons it's not like you're picking those numbers out of just kind of, you know, uh, out of the air here. I mean, 4,000 had to do with the fact of where you think the appropriate multiple is, where earnings are right now for the expectations of the S&P this year, correct? You're like, this is the first check back of that. This is the first re-rating. And then what happens is if you really do see, you know, mid to high single digits ex- expectation for earnings growth in the S&P 500 come down to low single digits, that's where you get that that five-year or 10-year average of the S&P, right? Is like, it would make sense, 16, 17, 17 times at about 3750. Is that correct, guy? That's, that's exactly right. I've said for a while, 
know, you try to simplify this as much as possible, but you know, when when rates matter and all of a sudden valuations are concerned, you have to say to yourself, are we going to mean revert in terms of exactly what you just said, the historical S&P 500 multiple, which is probably right around 17, give or take. Well, you start doing the math, you know, $228 of expected earnings, 17 multiple, maybe we overshoot to the downside. You could understand why 3750 is not that far-fetched. And I've said it for a while. So it made sense that we bounced yesterday. Absolutely made sense. We'll see what happens over the next 48 hours or so. But again, I'll stand by this. And if I'm wrong, I'll say it. I mean, I'm wrong all the time. But I think 3750 uh, is a bit of a foregone conclusion. And again, we'll see what happens if and when we get there. And we'll see what the catalyst is that gets us there, Dan. Yeah, I mean, if we're focused on valuation, then you got to look at the NASDAQ futures here, this NASDAQ 100, because, you know, we've been kind of spying that 13,000 level. You go back to the start of uh, last year or last spring, and that was kind of the level where, you know, it was kind of an eye-popping rally in May, June, July, um, into August for the NASDAQ 100 here. And, you know, we had a sharp little correction um, to start the fall, but then it was just kind of off to the races again from the lows in October. So one of the things that you and I mentioned on many occasions is that the NASDAQ topped out in late November. And that's really, I think, when valuation, it moved from, you know, people concerned about SPACs or concerned about crypto or concerned about recently public, um, you know, unprofitable tech IPOs to, to some of the really big names in the market, right? And, and we know that the last few um, have been the holdouts as the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, the Amazon, they're starting to give it up a little bit here. But at its lows yesterday, the NASDAQ futures guy were down 24%. And, and I guess my question to you is like, okay, we had a rip-roaring year last year. We've had a few rip-roaring years. We had a recession in 2020. We had a bear market and the market didn't even close down in 2020, you know? And so I'm curious your take on the NASDAQ. We, we get it, why it's been heavier. But when you look at this chart, Amanda put this together, the NASDAQ historical annual returns here, and you go back all the way to 20, uh, 2000, you know, people talk about it as the dot-com crash. Well, it was a three-year protracted bear market. So we had three consecutive years of, of, of down, you know, action down 40% 00, down 20% in 01, down 30% in, in 02. I mean, that felt horrible. And so in 08, it was just one year. You know what I mean? So here we are, down 20%. Is that enough, given everything that we know, Guy, in the NASDAQ? What's, what's really fascinating, and this, again, don't listen to me. Uh, the eyes, let your eyes be the judge. And you look at this and you forget a lot of people. And listen, I forgot that it wasn't really 99-2000. I mean, it was 0102, <laughs> if you think about it. I mean, to yeah. your point about a protracted bear market, that says it all. And we've seen it before. Now, will we see it again? <clears throat> well, we're on the precipice of it for without question. And the multiples, in my opinion, valuations, specifically, and a lot of these names that comprise the NASDAQ are still too high. So the final general, I think, is going to be in the form of Apple. Everybody fawned over that Apple quarter, and there was nothing wrong with it at all. Yeah. It was a great quarter. I mean, you think about the size of that company and their ability to continue to grow. That's got nothing to do with it. What to me, it's all about valuation and what you're willing to pay and why, you know, if you didn't know the stock was Apple and I gave you the numbers, six and a half, seven percent revenue growth, seven percent EPS growth and a stock that's trading 27 times the next year's numbers. Does that make sense? I don't think it did in a zero interest rate environment. I certainly don't think it does in a rising rate environment. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And, you know, again, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of money hiding out there. I'll just say this is like, you know, investors are still, you know, like some of these stocks that have been down, so, you know, Chegg, okay, this was mm -hmm. a, a school from home. Last week we had Teladoc, which was, you know, medicine from home, right? 
you know, checks down 30% today. I think Teladoc after its earnings last week was down 30% in one day. We're still seeing massive moves that, that dude, this stock check was down 80% from its all-time highs, you know, 16 months ago into this print. And I think it's really important to remember in this sort of uh, market that we're in, stocks that are down 70, 80%, they can get cut in half, they can get cut in half again. So picking bottoms is a really difficult proposition. And one last thing, you were not on Fast Money last night. You ditched me there too, buddy. But we were talking about Expedia's quarter. And I think Expedia was the E in your hope trade. And I like what they had to say, man. And I liked it when you added on to what United said a week and a half half ago or whatever and it had a defensible valuation <clears throat> look at this stock down 14 percent mm-hmm. doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of i mean now we're looking at yields real quick but you point about expedia and, and then real quick in terms of these individual names you know a lot of people will say well they're one-offs and yeah chegg is a one-off docusign is a one-off but when you have dozens of one-offs that becomes a trend right so you know, the years ago, you could say a name like a Chegg or a DocuSign was a one-off yeah. in the course of a year. But these are dozens of stocks that have done exactly that. The only thing that really hasn't capitulated are the indices. And we'll see. So that's why we bring these up. Not to, you know, not to be all doom and gloom, but to point out, hey, look, there's so much damage being done under the surface. Um, in in you know, it's just a matter of time, almost yeah. by definition, that the broader market catches up. Yeah. Well, you made this point on many occasions. We were looking at that NASDAQ futures chart. <clears throat> when it turned in late November, it turned, it directly coincided with the Fed's pivot. Mm-hmm. Look at this chart, five years of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. <clears throat> we know the last time it was above 3%. We know what happened to the stock market in 2018. Talk to me. Well, it wasn't particularly good, Dan, as you know, because I like to say this from October, um, basically from Halloween until Christmas Eve, the market went down 19.9% on the back of a Federal Reserve that basically, this was early Jerome Powell, by the way, and came out and gave language that the market didn't particularly like. Market traded down, again, 19.9%. He was getting browbeat by the administration at the time, and I think he succumbed to a market that was clearly vulnerable. Um, I think this is a much different Federal Reserve now. So- you saw what happened then. I think you're seeing in yeah. full-fledged what's happening now. And by the way, what's really interesting is inflation wasn't a problem then. Um, now it's a full-blown problem, and they somehow think they can control it. And I think it's going to take them a long time. I don't. Again, I don't think the market fully comprehends where rates need to be for inflation to not only stop going higher, but to abate and come down to levels that maybe are a bit more palatable. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, here we are, the Fed's, you know, raising rates in, in you know, two consecutive meetings, and this one's going to be 50 basis point. <clears throat> so can we get through that three and a quarter percent? Like, look at this on a five-year basis. Again, this is going back to what, what, what would be different guy this time around where rates are coming off a lower level and, you know, we're, we're at the 10-year, <clears throat> you know, back near three. Can it get through there? We have trillions of dollars more on the Fed's balance sheet here, which is kind of a problem. One of the reasons why I don't think rates are going to go meaningfully higher. And then if you look at a chart going back, you know, 20 plus years of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, this is a log chart. Draw a line from the upper left and, and just do, you know, not 45, but ish. It's racing, it's, it's racing up against long-term technical resistance here. No, and it should slow down to your point. You've been saying this for a while that, you know, you thought rates could go higher, but there'll come a point where they can't go significantly higher than they are. And maybe that's where we are right now in terms of this, what is effectively a 22-year trend line. I totally get that. And I've said a number of times that if the market sells off in the way that I think it would sell off, you will see a flight to quality in the form of not only the U.S. dollar, which has been off to the races, 
Yeah. But the bond market, what I find really interesting is the fact that, you know, 10 years continue to push up against this 3% level in a market that seems a bit skittish here. But if you were to see a prolonged sell-off, I do think bonds would be bought, meaning yields would go lower. And that downtrend line that you drew would st- remain intact. And we'll see. Is that- but I got to tell you something. You know, it makes you wonder, Dan, if rates go significantly lower than here, what type of environment we find ourselves in, right? So there, there's so many interesting things going on at these levels. So if rates were to go lower, what does that mean for the broader market? Are they going lower because the broader market sold off? Those are all the things you really need to think about. No, well, I mean, going back to Paul Tudor Jones, he's saying it's a pretty difficult environment. And he is a macro um, trader. You know, speaking of macro assets, and I'm sure he likes the gold too. You like the gold. You've had a great call on gold. Carter was on yesterday with us. And, you know, he did some great charting here. <clears throat> Near term, he's pretty bullish on this. He thinks you get a check back to that downtrend, which also lines up with that uptrend. And he likes it. I try to turn it around here because I say that if it doesn't hold that uptrend, man, look at the long-term chart guy of gold here. And going back, this is a log chart going back to 1999. You're up against some serious, serious technical resistance. It's the line starts at the 2011 high, right? That was in the period of, again, where that experiment with QE was getting going there, um, you know, back in 2011. And look at that, the 2020 high. And here we are. We just rejected there. What's your take on gold near term? Um, I know that you think that it's probably it seems like it trades better in this environment let's say than digital gold we're going to talk about bitcoin in a second but on a long-term basis um do we get through that level yeah well the shorter term chart that you we showed a pennant formation that we finally broke out to to the upside and the check back makes sense i think that's exactly what carter said and you just spoke to that so the check back would probably come in the form of 1825 or so. But I do think the fact that we've broken out of this pennant formation is a bullish thing. We'll see. The longer term chart, though, suggests that we're up against resistance levels. So it's anybody's guess. I mean, my dogma, and I say it all the time, try not to be dogmatic, but when it comes to gold, I am. Um, there's central banks been buying gold. Physical gold's been in demand. It just hasn't manifested in terms of the price. But we'll see, especially... You know, we'll talk about Bitcoin, I'm sure, but especially if Bitcoin would continue to go lower, one has to wonder what it means for gold. So this is the if there was ever an environment where gold should work, it's yeah. now now gold bulls need to prove themselves. All right. So let's reset this little show that we got going on here right now. So, Guy, you and I think the potential for a sort of like maybe a little bit of a rally. Let's see what they do into the meeting tomorrow. And listen, there's a chance that we literally flatline between here and two o'clock. And you also know that that first move is a really tough one to trade when those headlines coming start coming out, especially given algos. But I mean, again, if they're hawkish, um, or more hawkish than people think, you think that equities go down. I think so too. But if they, for any reason, are able to say, okay, you know what, maybe we're going to take a breather now. Maybe you get that move back to 4,400. That's in the S&P 500. Um, The other one is rates. So you and I both think that maybe the velocity of the move higher slows down a little bit at technical resistance. And then obviously, if we get weaker data, like we started to get with the ISM and that GDP, maybe you see uh, them buying bonds, U.S. Treasuries, and the yields would obviously go lower here. And then gold, it's kind of a moment of truth. Wouldn't you say so? You have that pennant formation. It busted out in a major freaking way, but it's checking back here. And it really does have to do with what I guess investors think is going on um, with the, uh, you know, the, the, the easing. Now, all that, I just wanted to kind of get 
all that like leveled up here because now we got to look at this U.S. dollar. Okay, so it's been surging. All right, to your point, you just mentioned it here. I mean, it was at 98. Now it's at near 104. That's the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index. We know that half of that is the euro. Guy, look at this chart going back to 2016. What does this say to you, bud? It says double top, potential for a huge double top if we fail here. And again, one has to wonder why we would fail here. I'll give you one of the main reasons why we potentially could fail here. It's a point you made earlier. If the stock market, if the S&P were to go back to 4,400, it would be on the back of probably a Fed that's considered more dovish than they have been, which would be bearish for the dollar, which would support exactly this double top that we just spoke of. So if you think the equity market is going to rally here, that's probably going to be predicated on a more dovish Federal Reserve, which should be bearish for the dollar. And this double top gives you a great trading opportunity. All right. So zooming out, though, guy, back to 1999, because that's what we're doing here. We're parting like it was 1999 a little bit. You you love the Prince, don't you? Are you a fan of the Prince? Um, the, the artist formerly known as Prince. I believe he was from the state of Minnesota. Everybody seems to think that that was the greatest halftime show of all time. I am not one of those people. Yeah, I, you know, I never got that. I, I don't like the canned response that people use. Oh, he's so talented. Yeah, listen, you know, rest in peace. I'm, I'm just saying, I, sorry that he's not here. I just never got all the hype about Prince, to be very frank. But zooming out a little bit to 1999, I don't even know where we got there. Sorry about that. Look at that, you know, that consolidation is really between 90 and 100 ish, you know, a little little below 90, a little above 100 over the last, let's call it six or so years here. And what did the dollar start doing? It started ramping when the Fed came off their zero interest rate policy. Right. And then when they stopped quantitative easing and really it's been in this very volatile uh, range. I mean, what's a scenario where you could see it break out above that and head back to those highs from like, let's say 20 years ago, which is up near 120. And I think it's important to remember, interestingly, it was at 120 back then. Mm-hmm. You know, we just said Europe make that conversion to the euro and people were really skeptical about the euro back then, weren't they? Yeah. And as it turns out, probably rightly so. When yeah. I think that's one of the great failed experiments, at least we'll talk about that in decades to come. You know, the euro being one of the great failed experiments, and it's happening right before our very eyes. But to your point, you know, here's that level, and we're right up against, you know, this goes back to 2015 or so. We're at the top end of the range. To answer your question, what would get the dollar to continue to rally? Well, if that potential for a dovish Fed does not manifest itself and this Fed continues to be hawkish, uh, and if the market were to sell off once again, that would be supportive of flight to quality assets, the dollar being one of them. So where yields would go lower under those circumstances, yeah. the dollar would continue to go higher. And again, that's a raising, you know, a rising dollar predicated on a sold-off market. Market sells off more, the dollar goes higher. It becomes this vacuous cycle that probably, I would imagine, rectifies itself, believe it or not, around 118 to 120, that earlier point you made in terms of where the dollar topped out Dude. 22 years ago vacuous is such a great word it's such a great word i'd like you to start using that more i mean it just it just feels like it's just meant to be on the market call all right speaking <laughs> let, let's let's talk a bit um about bitcoin here because if you have a surging dollar we know that bitcoin was invented um because somebody you know him satoshi nakamoto he mm-hmm. got a little pissed off right that central banks were just devaluing their currencies right during the financial crisis so he kind of got to coding it created this thing um and you know, Bitcoin was born back there in 2009, 2010. Well, here's the thing. And you've made this point, I think, quite eloquently on many occasions here is that maybe the only thing that gets Bitcoin going right now is if the Fed 
you know, has a dovish pivot because right now it does not like the hawkish tone here. This is a headline from Forbes, a story that they're calling it that Bitcoin and crypto are now raised for a nine trillion dollar Fed earthquake. And, and I do think that's kind of interesting. So, you know, they built up that balance sheet. Um, they devalued the dollar. We saw the rise of crypto in general got to what, two and a half trillion at its height when the Fed was probably their most dovish. But year over year, that's changed. But here's the deal, man. This thing, the Bitcoin can't rally year over year. It's down. You know what I mean? Um, it's basically where it was, you know, at the end of 2020 or, or, or the start of 2021. What's your take on this here? Because, you know, the technical setup is not particularly great. And it really feels like we got a little bit of a hungry alligator working here in the big. Well, I'm not sure about the hungry, any of those reptiles. Although, again, yeah. alligator not nearly as deadly as sort of the Nile crocodile, by the true, way, true. for you folks playing our home game. But I'll say this. It's not coincidence, I think, to the point you were making that, Bitcoin topped out right around the time the Fed pivoted. I mean, again, that's not coincidence. So to your point about what would make Bitcoin take the next leg higher? Well, for whatever reason, if this Federal Reserve does blink and blink in this term means become more dovish or give up this policy where they're going to fight inflation, to me, that takes Bitcoin not only through 68,000, but probably get to those 100,000 levels that a lot of people have been looking for. So Whoa. all this is to me is a bet on a Federal Reserve if they're going to stay steadfast or if they're going to blink. Now, $9 trillion earthquake, I get it. I will say this. Their balance sheet shouldn't be zero. I mean, the Fed should have a balance sheet. And a lot of that, again, to use the word, is predicated on money supply. And in this environment, the right number for that balance sheet is probably around $6 trillion. But if you think about it, I mean, that's still significantly lower than where we are now. And to get it down to $6 trillion, I don't, you know, again, I don't know what impact it's going to have on the market, but it ain't going to be good. <clears throat> Not happening. Yeah, quickly in ETH, um, this one, you see that trend line in the futures here, um, you know, brings you back towards like 2450. I think that's a great reload level. And it doesn't, you know, listen, you break that and you're going back to the double bottom June, July low. That's near 1800. All right, guy, really, before we get out of here, let's hit a couple big earnings that are after the close. AMD is a name that you follow quite closely, um, had a monster year last year. The implied move in the options market in either direction is 9%. Starbucks also reporting two obviously very different names, implied move uh, 6%. Both of these stocks have absolutely gotten killed of late. The AMD is down nearly 38% on the year and Starbucks is down 36% of the year. Let's look at this AMD really quickly. This chart goes back to the start of 2021. Valuations come back in check here. We know the supply demand dynamics here. We know there's some concerns about PC demand, server demand, the, you know, all that sort of stuff. What's your take? Has this stock from 160 down to 90? Is that enough? Is that enough, guy? Well, it was cutting. I mean, uh, late last week, this stock had been cut in half from that all-time high we saw just a few months ago. Yeah. Is it enough? Well, in terms of valuation, you know, you have a stock now trading probably 18 and a half, 19 times next year's numbers. And the knee-jerk for AMD over the last couple of years into earnings and post-earnings has been a bit of a sell-off. And then a week or so later, the stock is rallying. But given the fact that we've sold off so significantly, do we see something different now? I actually think we do. I think the setup is pretty good. But I'll tell you, you know, you could come back to me and Mark could call tomorrow and say, I don't know what you think about at AMD when we're talking about a stock that's trading in the low 80s. But I will stay by that. I think you're definitely due for a relief rally in this name on valuation alone, Dan. 
Yeah, and and I like you know. Listen, we're we're having opportunities to kind of pick at things as they go lower, even on decent news. The semi space has had some decent news though, um, so maybe this one will follow suit. So that's a name that I think that when you think things are starting to bottom out, I want to pick at. Here's a name that you know, Starbucks guy that has always traded a, a premium valuation to many of its kind of quick serve peers, that sort of thing. A great international expansion, you know, opportunities that might have been lessened of late, but this stock topped out guy in July of last year. Okay, well before the stock market did and there was something going on there and maybe that should have been a tell on some higher valuation consumer discretionary names earnings growth is expected to be flat this year double digit um, expected sales growth still trades at 23 times trades about 20 times next year the report after the close here man this thing has just been bludgeoned it's coming up right on some some technical support going back to the spring of 2020 guys spring of 2020 is it enough here down 40 percent from its highs you know the answer should be yes. I, unfortunately, I don't think it is. I mean, you think about all the tailwinds Starbucks had for years that gave them that premium valuation. One of the biggest tailwinds was demand out of China, growth yeah. in China. Well, that's clearly stopped bit on a bit of a dime. And one has to wonder, will we take out all that excess? So we're at interesting levels here. To your point, we're levels we last saw in 2020 or so. I just think there's continued weakness in this name. You know, maybe you get a little bit of a bounce, but you have a 200-day moving average. It's clearly turned to the downside. And, you know, there's a chance that we overshoot to the downside once again. Now, I don't know if we're going to get to those March 2020 levels, which I think, Dan, was either side of 50 bucks. But I do think we can get ourselves into the high 60s. All right, man. Well, that's a name, obviously, I think in the high 60s would probably have a lot of institutional support too, right? If you happen to be out of it and you like the story, you think the international growth comes back online and some of the investments that they made in tech and logistics and stuff is going to pay off in the future. Um, great. you know. And I would just say the one thing, though, this Expedia really kind of threw me for a loop here, man. I really expected this thing to be a bit firmer and it opened kind of firm after being up in the aftermarket last night and went down straight 15% mm-hmm. in a line. So to me, you know, this is that sort of market it's kind of one step forward two steps back like a bruce springsteen song i said 30 minutes on the clock we went a little bit over but there's a lot going on dan and that's it for today's market call by the way just so you know tomorrow is wednesday now typically we have ey from sofi on thursday we're gonna have her tomorrow because why not there is a lot going on great to have her voice i want to thank our sponsor cme group where risk in fact does meet opportunity and open exchange check them out on the twitter we will be back 23 hours and 32 or 28 minutes, something like yeah, that, something from like this that. point. That was good math by me. Later, peeps. See you, bud. Thanks. 